Listener Production. We all know that feeling when a comment or an action just pushes our buttons. So why do we have these triggers and can we turn them off? Triggers aren't just the things that you're offended by on the internet. Triggers are actual responses within you that are very distressing in response to stimuli in your environment or inside yourself. They can impact our parenting in a way that we may not like. Welcome to episode five of our special series, Parenting the Parent with Dr. Rebecca Ray, where we explore what it means to be a parent, the choices we make, the ways that we cope, and how we can turn old patterns into new actions. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt and Rebecca Ray. Dang, it's hard to be an adult some days, particularly when you're an adult raising small humans. If you're upset about something, there's often no time to deal with it. So you bury it, maybe thinking you'll sort it out later. Only later never comes. And that emotion, that upset can bubble to the surface and lead you to act in ways you're not proud of. This is Parenting the Parent with Dr. Rebecca Ray, a clinical psychologist, author of several books, and mum to one cheeky little boy. Hi, Beck. How are you? Hi, Chef. I'm really well, thanks. The word trigger or triggering is thrown about quite a bit these days, but what do we mean by trigger? (laughs) I'm so glad we're having this conversation because one of my triggers is the word triggered being being used (laughs) ineffectively or inappropriately. So trigger has become common vernacular on the internet for something that you're offended by or something that you just don't like. And that's actually not what we mean by trigger in a psychological sense. So a trigger from a psychological perspective is something within you, so it's an internal experience or it's an external piece of stimuli in the environment that creates a distressing response for you. It's something that usually relates to a memory that is unpleasant. What kinds of emotions are they? I I admit when I hear the word trigger, I always think, that it's it's going to elicit some kind of extreme emotion in the person being triggered, whether that's a panic attack or an extreme fear response or something quite extreme. Is, is that right or can it be of varying degrees? It can be both. I, I have, um, in my clinical experience, I spent a lot of time treating emergency services personnel and defence force personnel who had post-traumatic stress disorder. They have very distinct triggers that can happen in the environment that remind them of traumatic memories. And they can have very real and obvious reactions to those triggers, like running away from the situation, from getting incredibly angry and yelling. But we can also be triggered quietly. So you can have a trigger to a memory that makes you feel a certain way when you're parenting your child. And if you were watching me and I was experiencing it, you might not see anything change with me at all. But what is happening for me is internal. So we're not necessarily talking about, you ask what kind of emotions. We're not just talking about emotions. We can be talking about thoughts. We could be talking about body sensations. We could be talking about memories. And those mental 
representations can come in different forms as well. So you might be hearing a voice in your head that replicates perhaps the voice of your own parent. You could also be seeing images that are distressing for you in your mind. And then if we're talking about stimuli in the environment, we're talking about particular things that might happen around you or other people, um, particular places, and it's those things that make you feel distressed in a certain way. That distress though It might be contained, even though the person might feel very uncomfortable. So you might not necessarily see it, but it could still be happening. How do our individual triggers develop? Usually because of painful experiences that then lead to painful memories of those experiences. Those experiences, when they're not resolved emotionally, stay with us. And so that means when we think about or conjure the memory, we can have particular things that are associated or bring about that memory. Those things are triggers. Now, when we're talking about triggers in the true psychological sense, most of the time we're not choosing them. (laughs) So we don't ask to be triggered And oftentimes, if you know you've got certain triggers, you'll probably go out of your way to avoid those situations, people, places, so that you don't have to experience that distress associated with them. But what those triggers are doing is they're usually in an unwanted, involuntary way, bringing to mind those painful memories. Could you maybe give me an example of how this might play out? Yep. We mentioned in a previous episode, an example of a child might break a glass. I have a clear memory of when I was probably around eight, being awake in the morning when my dad would go to work. My dad's a retired builder, so we get up very early. My mum would be making his lunch. Um, Our house started very early because of that. And I dropped a cup. The cup broke And I was yelled at by both parents at the same time. Um, Now, not realising it, I didn't actually, I haven't consciously taken this piece of information and replayed it until this particular time in my parenting life. So not too long ago, um, Bennett was in the kitchen helping uh, my wife make dinner and he was sitting on the bench and he accidentally knocked a cup off the bench and it smashed on the ground. And the noise of that cup breaking took me right back to that particular memory. And I actually had an anxiety response in the moment. Now, you wouldn't have seen anything happen. It's not like I jumped up and yelled or anything like that. I was in a different room at the time, but the experience of that was very real in my body. I actually had to slow my breathing down in order to be able to remind myself that I'm okay. Who really cares if a cup gets broken? It's absolutely fine. Um, And to then be able to distinguish between my present moment experience and what had happened to me as a child. So something that happens with a trigger is it stops us from being able to relate to the present moment in a way that is connected to the here and now. And instead, our experience gets dragged back into the past and we're responding to that experience rather than to what's actually happening. I can see how that's problematic in parenting. 
If we were to imagine that scenario where you weren't in a separate room and you were in the room with Bennett when he broke the glass, how might you have responded once you were triggered? I think I may have jumped, maybe not literally off the ground, but had a start, what we call a startle response, an exaggerated startle response. Um, Because essentially it's not just the noise of the cup breaking, it's what follows it that I'm responding to. So I'm responding to breaking cup means bad and that I'm bad because I did it. And therefore the reaction is going to come that follows that. So what my brain is doing with that particular memory is it is then predicting, remember we've talked about frames of reference, my frame of reference at a, like a biological level in the cells in my brain that hold those memories are that when that noise happens, I get in trouble. So in that, if I was in the kitchen, then I may very well have jumped as if I was then expecting to be yelled at. But then what I have to do, the challenge as a parent then, is I have to disentangle myself from the trigger, disentangle myself from the physiological response, remind myself that I'm in the here and now with a child who's my responsibility, uh, confirm that everyone's safe because something was smashed, and then make sure that there's psychological safety present for my child, who could make the assumption that he's done something wrong. It sounds like by their very nature that you cannot control triggers. Is there a way of dealing with that original trauma so that we aren't triggered by the same thing in the future. So is there a way for you to revisit that experience as a child or to heal that wound that you had there so that the next time Bennett breaks a glass, I don't know about your son, my son's really clumsy, he breaks shit all the time, um, so that it doesn't create that response in you? Yeah, so you're right. You can't control triggers for the most part unless you avoid a place or a particular person that represents a trigger for you. But we can control how we respond. So if it was, let me give you another example that's probably a little more subtle than something being broken. I used to get in trouble as a child for hurting myself, particularly if I was doing something that hurt myself that I was told not to do. So I remember we used to go down a hill on skateboards, my brother and I, and if we came off the skateboard and then went in and cried to mum, we would get belted for going on the skateboard in the first place. And so, um, and then slathered in mercurochrome to try to make the scabs better. But (laughs) one of the things that, so I know that, right? I know that's never going to happen, be my child's experience, but I know that. I know that that's how my parents cope when they see someone else in pain, rather than dealing with their own, I don't want to see you cry or I don't want to see you hurt, it then gets translated into anger as you shouldn't have done that because now I feel horrible seeing you in pain and my distress is your fault. That's essentially what's happening internally. Interesting convoluted thinking there. (laughs) Yes. Well, they're not doing that consciously. No. Um, So we had a situation recently. I was at my mum and dad's house and Bennett was walking around the edge of a fireplace that my dad had made. No fire was on at the time. And it was just loose pavers on the edge of the fireplace and he slipped off one and it scraped his shin. And I was nurturing him, making sure he was okay. And he said, I want to go and tell Dar what happened. Now, me, 
being not all that intelligent in that moment, <laughs> said, all right, let's go and tell Dar what happened. Oh, no. Now, we went up to the patio and I took him to dad. We were in a social setting. There was a party happening at the time. We interrupted my dad's conversation. And my dad's response to Bennett's bleeding leg was, you shouldn't have been on the fireplace in the first place, which made Bennett cry harder because Aww. Bennett was expecting validation. But mm. my parents don't do validation. Now, in that moment, as the words were coming out of dad's mouth, I had the standard reaction that I would have had as a child, which is to feel small, to feel embarrassed, to feel inconvenient for my emotions. But I was able to stop it because, I mean, I couldn't stop the discomfort. And I was mildly furious that I'd put my child in this situation that he then had to experience that from my dad because I should have known better. But because I do know better, because I've seen this happen so many times, I was able to interrupt that pattern within me to go, okay, this is what dad's going to say, but I can fix this with him, with Bennett. Bennett is my son. So when I was in a place where I took Bennett away, I was able to provide the validation that dad didn't provide. Instead of shrinking into those feelings and being sucked up into that trigger, the interruption happened because I was consciously able to say, oh yeah, we've been here before with this. Yeah, this is what they always do. I don't know why I expected it to be different. So I can respond differently. So what we're talking about is something that's an involuntary process. You can't choose when painful memories are brought to the surface, but you can then choose how you respond to them in the present moment. Again, perhaps listeners will get sick of me saying this through this series, but awareness is everything. And as you're doing this, what you do is you end up becoming more aware of what's happening within you and then what you can and can't control in response to it. I can't control my mum and dad. I wish I bloody could sometimes, but I can't. <laughs> I love them for what they are. And I also am very aware of what they're not capable of being. So when we take that, I can then apply that in such a way that I'm able to recognise when their stuff triggers my stuff, but not then have it um, projected onto my child. It sounds like with some triggers, we will not be able to predict them. We won't be able to control them. We don't even know where they're coming from. But I would think that there are some triggers we could be quite aware of, particularly if we haven't been able to heal the original wound and we keep getting triggered by the same sort of thing. How do we become aware of what our actual triggers are? I think to start off with, in terms of becoming aware of what your triggers are, you need to look at what's creating strong emotional responses in you. If there is something that repetitively, repetitively shows up in your parenting journey with your child, um, it's worth looking at where's the pattern there and where did that stem from? Is that related to something that you've experienced before that was painful um, in either the way you were parented or in some kind of significant event with are growing up in your childhood because sometimes we get triggered by other significant childhood experiences. We've, we're obviously talking about parents during this podcast, but there are other significant people that can have an influence on us as we grow up as well. Teachers, mentors, um, organised groups, le leaders of organised groups like church and sports and things like that. 
So all of those experiences can lead to create imprints in our mind. And I'm not saying that you need to know every single thing that was painful to know when it might show up. But I am saying that perhaps there's a pattern that you recognize that can start you off by thinking, okay, maybe this is something that I need to address. And if we want to try and manage them, then I'm assuming going back to that original wound, for want of a better word, mm. and tr- working out ways to heal or evolve or deal with that wound, is that what you would suggest? Yes. And no, some wounds are too big. And I would say a therapist is your best friend. I read something the other day that said, if you had a childhood, if you're you're now an adult and you had a childhood, you will benefit from therapy. Um, (laughs) And I, I have to agree with that. Some wounds are big and I would suggest that you don't try to necessarily heal them on your own. But there is a lot that can be done by exposing yourself to new information that give you skills that you didn't previously have from your own upbringing. There's a lot of information out there now that can go a long way to helping you understand why you do what you do and then looking at new ways of doing it. I just don't want to simplify it by saying it's It's about healing those wounds because I'd also argue that perhaps some wounds don't ever really get healed and they're things within us that we just carry for the rest of our lives and we simply have to be aware of or mindful too how they might impact our parenting behaviour. That doesn't sound very enticing. (laughs) The wounds that we might carry or the things that might trigger us for the rest of our lives. How how do we move forward with that knowledge? This is very on brand for me. This is not the first time I've been called out in an interview to perhaps put a little bit of a positive spin on things <laughs> rather than making them sound awful. I think it comes with the job. I, I would much rather have people know the truth and deal with the truth than to be led into some false reality. But you're right. There is a way that we can deal with it and live bravely and meaningfully and lovely lives. When you carry wounds within you that influence you, again, we come back to what we can and can't control. So you can't control triggers in your environment all the time. You can't control when those triggers are going to show up within you. But you can control having skills to be able to regulate your responses and calm yourself down in the moment, especially when there's that space between the event and your response to the event and then the space between you experiencing that and parenting your child. So what I want listeners to know is that when you carry that stuff, scars, for want of a better word, first of all, I want you to know that you're, you're very human and you're very normal for that. There's none of us that walk around that don't have some form of scarring that we carry. So there's nothing that makes you broken because you have that. We don't need to get ourselves perfectly healed in order to be able to live amazing lives. However, by knowing what that scarring is about and what it's related to in terms of your value system, what that means for who you now want to be in the world, that's when we can find meaning. Simply because I've been there. But the scars themselves don't need to be swept away or avoided, pretended that they don't exist in order for you to be okay. That's not to say that they won't necessarily need some addressing at some point in time. Um, In my experience, that can be sometimes unpredictable in and of itself. 
And it can mean that you do some work today and that's great for the next 12 months and then you need to do work again. Um, Sometimes it repeats like that. But it's also a case of you can do work now and it can kind of lie dormant for quite some time. It doesn't necessarily always need to have an influence on you. What do we do as a parent if we have those unresolved issues from our past that keep turning up in our lives as triggers? How do we deal with that as an adult so that we can be the best version of ourselves for our kids? That's a really good question because I think it's important to acknowledge that it doesn't matter how many times a trigger shows up, for some triggers they will just stick around and speak to wounds that we're just going to carry on and on and on as many times as something comes up in our environment that relates to them. I'm not sure I'm proud of this, but we have a child for whom there was a show and tell schedule set at kindy. So what does that mean? (laughs) Exactly. I didn't know that there was ever such a thing as a schedule, but Bennett wanted to do show and tell every single day. Um, (laughs) Bless you, Bennett. Uh, I didn't necessarily think there was anything wrong with that. Nissa did. So, and so did Kindy, obviously, because <laughs> they then set a schedule so that each person could have a have a um a show and tell spot or slot. The Nissa responded to this in a really interesting way. So um she said something along the lines of to me privately, not in front of Bennett, oh goodness, do you think we're teaching him to steal the limelight? Now the, this is interesting because it relates to Nissa's experience. My wife, Nissa, is a musician. Um, she learnt to sing from the age of five. She learnt to play piano at the age of seven. She taught herself to play drums and gu- drums at 12. She taught herself to play guitar at 15. Um, and throughout her entire childhood was performing in one way or another because of her just natural talent. Now, as she grew up, because she could sing beautifully, she naturally got chosen for events, opportunities um, and experiences in the school system and in extracurricular activities where she was able to show off that talent. Now, Nissa's mum was in a band when before she fell pregnant with Nissa. And she actually really wanted to go and travel with the band. She was offered an opportunity to do a um, national tour with this particular band. And her father, so this is Nissa's grandfather, said to her mother, that's not a real job for a lady and <laughs> you need to... You need to make a decision that is perhaps a little bit more appropriate for someone that's going to have a family. And so Nissa's mum walked away from her singing career and then had children, always wanted to have children, has very much been defined um, by having children, loves it, loves being mum. But as she raised Nissa, she, during Nissa's upbringing, The way that played out was Nissa being selected for school musicals, uh, winning a Stedford Prizes, things like that. She was regularly met with the fairly overt message from her mum that shouldn't someone else have a turn now. Nissa's mum has actually told me that she had heard parents whispering, um, other parents, 
whispering that, oh, Nissa always gets the roles. And it sounds like Nissa, Nissa's mum then internalised that as something shameful. But she very clearly expressed to Nissa that uh, being the centre of attention on a regular basis is a problem and it's something that needs to be managed Otherwise, it means something about you, like you're a show-off um, or you're selfish or you're entitled or something like that. All negative things. Now, the way this has played out for Nissa as an adult prior to us even thinking about having a child is that Nissa was in a position where she actually, for a time, really struggled to put herself out, out there in the music industry. Now, the music industry is not the kindest industry to anyone, but she would often feel like putting her hand up for certain opportunities was selfish, that she was putting herself in a position where she would be seen as someone trying to hog the limelight. Now, she did work on that. She kind of wrapped her head around where that had come from. She was able to see that that was a direct response to what her mum had said to her in childhood. She was also able to acknowledge that that actually is not consistent with her belief. She doesn't think that she was being at all um, selfish and this is what entertainers do. So she was able to reconcile that and then we went and had a baby. And then we went and had a baby who was very good at show and tell. (laughs) And because he was that good at show and tell, again, that trigger comes up. Now, in some situations, you might think that you've got a trigger settled it's, it's done. You've integrated it. You've done the work. You should be good to go now. And then you have a baby <laughs> and he's good at show and tell and you're not so good to go because it comes up in another way. And I think this is how, this is how parenting works, right? It's constantly changing because we are constantly evolving and we're raising little people through the most profound developmental stages of their entire life. So as they evolve, we're evolving with them or at least trying to. And so with this situation with Bennett's show and tell, Nissa was facing this trigger again. She's in a position where she's like, I thought I, I, thought I dealt with this. Damn. Yes, and here I am saying words out of my mouth that my mum said to me that has actually injured me and I never actually want to hear it. So she said that to me privately, not to Bennett. She would never say that to Bennett because she has that awareness that she's not passing it on, but it still came out. Yeah. So I want listeners to understand that we might never get rid of it and we certainly might not be able to turn it off. Um, It might raise its ugly head in a different scenario when you thought you dealt with it and that's okay because every time you deal with it a little bit, what you're doing is you're actually raising your awareness so that you can see it in all its different disguises when it shows up next time. Because it might not be as obvious as the one that I'm describing. It might be something more subtle that is just, it just kind of feels like a feeling. What, why, why am I feeling guilty about this? There's no, there's no decent reason for me to feel guilty about this. And yet then you can make some links back to what it's related to. It might not go away, but that doesn't mean that it has to define you moving forward. You can consistently raise your awareness to how, to when it's present and then how you respond. Beck, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Chef. That was the fifth episode in our series, Parenting the Parent with Dr. Rebecca Ray. In the next episode, we look at why, as parents, we don't give ourselves more of a break. I mean, being a parent's hard work. 
Join myself and Beck next time to find out why timeout for parents is so essential. And remember, you can enjoy all the weekly episodes in the series just by liking or following Feed Play Love wherever you listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed Play Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the Listener app and don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.